Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is John the ninth chapter where my Bible is opened up to. John chapter 9. I would encourage you to be getting your Bible out and be looking at the top of John chapter 9. We're going to read a couple of verses there right at the top of the chapter that will get us underway in the study of the Word of God. John chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me join in with the welcome that was extended already. It is great to see everybody this morning. What a wonderful Lord's Day morning and just what a joy it is to be here and to to sing these great songs. Appreciate the good singing of those songs, the hearty way in which you do it. We sang a song there that I'd, I'd never even sung before, that Prince of Peace, but it was a wonderfully written song and been conducted into the throne room of God. And Just so glad to get to be here this morning. I feel a little rusty having not been in the pulpit up here for a couple of weeks with our gospel meeting a couple weeks ago, and then last week being away in a meeting at Aetna. Uh, had a good week with the brothers and sisters there. Appreciate those of you that came over and attended and supported that. That's just much appreciated. and It's a good week there, but I'll just tell you, just, just no place like home. No place I'd rather be on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening or really pretty much just about all the time than, than right here at Lakeside. Love my brothers and sisters here. Much to say this morning from the Word of God, so let's just get right to it. In John chapter 9, read with me here beginning in verse 1. John 9 verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This passage brings to life one of the great questions of life. Why? Why? Why do people suffer? Jesus' disciples saw this blind beggar sitting on the side of the road and they asked, Why? Why is this man suffering in this way? Why is this man afflicted with the terrible case of blindness? Did he do something wrong? Did his parents do something wrong? Surely somebody must have done something wrong to cause this man's blindness. Jesus, why is he suffering? And this must have been a question that they had wrestled with for some time, because it's pretty clear when you look at verse 2, the disciples had kind of already made their mind up. They had already developed their own explanations for this man's affliction. They just assumed that this man's blindness was the result of God's judgment for sin. Somebody must have done something wrong, because that's the only way that we can make sense of this man's suffering, right? Well, Jesus responds in verse 3, and He says, Actually, boys, actually you're wrong. This man's blindness doesn't have anything to do with his sins or sins that his parents committed. This man's blindness is actually the working of God. It is God's work so that the Lord might be glorified in him. And in fact, if you go on to read in John the ninth chapter, in the next several verses, what you'll see is you'll see that Jesus miraculously heals this man of his blindness. And as a result, God is in fact glorified. People marvel at the great power that Jesus demonstrates. That opens up some doors for Jesus to do some important teaching there with some of these folks. God was glorified through this man's suffering. But you know what? As I look at this passage, I always keep coming back to verse 2. And I keep coming back to those assumptions that the disciples had developed in their mind to try and explain and somehow rationalize this man's suffering. And I keep coming back to that verse because I think that's where a lot of us are today. Because just like those disciples, we have assumptions 
And many times they are wrong assumptions about suffering. We have lots of misconceptions about who causes suffering, about how it ought to be dealt with, about what God's role ought to be in all of that. In fact, I've known people, you've known people, who have lost their faith entirely because they had wrong ideas about human suffering. I've known as well of people, and you see these kinds of people all the time on television and blogs, they're sometimes the most vocal people, people who are prevented from ever coming to faith in the Lord because they just can't get over this big hurdle of evil and human suffering in the world today. And we see this, we see this usually on a big scale whenever there are big national tragedies or tragedies on a global scale where lots of people are, are hurt in some way and the news media catches attention of that and, and gives that all kinds of coverage. For example, whenever there's a mass shooting in a school or in a movie theater or somewhere and many people lose their lives and people start banging the drum pretty quickly and they start asking the why question. And sometimes you'll have people over here on the far left and they'll start saying, huh, where's God now? Huh? Huh? Why didn't God do anything about that? Huh? What's the deal there? Why'd God let that happen? And then, of course, we've got people kind of at the other end of the spectrum, take a completely different point of view about these things. Remember a couple of years ago, whenever there was those tragic earthquakes in Haiti, remember that? Just totally devastated that country. People died, lost their homes. That country still hasn't recovered from that. But I remember when all of that happened, the noted televangelist Pat Robertson, he went on the airwaves and he started talking about how, well, they got what they deserved. Those people down in Haiti, they were being punished by God. They practiced voodoo and all kinds of sorcery and wickedness. It's their own fault that they're suffering that way. Whichever end of the spectrum you go to, it doesn't matter. Those are some pretty big leaps. Those are some pretty big assumptions, are they? And I'm afraid that sometimes, sometimes we entertain those very same kinds of thoughts. Those kinds of thoughts start swirling through our heads, specifically whenever the one who is suffering is me. Whenever I am the one who is hurting. That's when we really start kind of getting the mind working overtime and we start making some leaps in logic and we start cranking out a bunch of assumptions. You know, it's one thing for me to see some, some, per, some person crying on television because they lost their spouse in one of those shooting incidents. But you know what? It's a whole different ball game whenever I'm the one who's crying because I lost my spouse to cancer. Or you know, it's certainly it's upsetting when we turn on the television and we see people across the East Coast down in Florida and in some of those areas where their homes are just ravaged and destroyed by a hurricane. But it's even more upsetting. Whenever I'm the one who's been laid off of my job at the factory and now the bank is about to foreclose on my home and we're going to be homeless. It's a whole different ball game. I preached the funeral yesterday afternoon of a man who had a dear brother in Christ who had been afflicted with the dreaded disease of Alzheimer's for the past four or five years. And even I, I was close to that man and I loved him very much. And even I start asking these questions, why did he suffer in that way? What gave, was there a reason for all of that? You see, whenever we suffer personally, that's when we really start to ask the why question. And when that answer is not readily apparent, that's when we start making some wrong assumptions. Assumptions that are not biblical, and assumptions that are not faith-building, but instead are faith-wrecking.
This morning, I want to highlight three of those wrong assumptions. And let's see as we dissect these, let's see if we can dispel some of the false notions that people often have about human suffering and trials and adversity. Because when we understand why these things don't work, then we'll actually be able to start seeing the truth and developing right attitude towards suffering and what God is trying to do in our lives. Lots of wrong ideas, lots of wrong assumptions out there. Namely, let's start with this first one. The first idea is that so often people just assume that God is responsible for all the bad things that happen in life. I mean, He is, after all, the Creator of all things, right? God is in control of the entire universe, yes. Look in Ephesians 1. Doesn't the Bible even say some things along those lines? In Ephesians 1, there's a passage that talks about the eternal purposes of God. Notice what the writer says. Paul says here at the end of verse 11, Ephesians 1 verse 11, In Him, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. Notice this. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. There you go. God's all-powerful. He rules the universe with His power and His might. He is in charge. Paul says, all things work according to the counsel of His will. However, in some people's minds, what that means is that means then that God just always gets His way. That everything that takes place on planet earth is a direct expression of the will of God. I mean, after all, He's God, right? God is God. Who's going to come along and tell God, no, 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 God, you you, you can't get it. You can't get it your way. You're not going to get what you want, God. No, God always gets what He wants all the time, every time. He controls everything. And in fact, we even have little cliches that people say that really kind of go hand in hand with that idea. Ever heard somebody say, everything happens for a reason. There you go. That's that idea so often. That's what people mean by that. That's expressing this idea that God just controls every single event, every single detail in life here on this earth. And if everything does happen for a reason, my dog gets run over, my grandmother gets sick, my house burns down, two planes crash into the World Trade Center, well then that means, just do the math, that means that God did it. God is responsible for the terrible things that are happening in my life. That, of course, is actually not true. Would you go back to the very beginning, please? Let's just go back to the beginning of time. Let's just see if from the beginning, God gets His way. In Genesis chapter 2, we're reading here about the very first people on planet earth. And we're reading here about God's first laws. In Genesis 2, look in verse 16. The Bible says that the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what is the will of God here? Well, the will of God is expressed very clearly here and directly without any doubt at all. Don't eat of that tree in the middle of the garden. Yet, what is the very next thing that happens? Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Question. Did God want that to happen? 
No, he did not. Was God responsible for that happening? No, he was not. Well, what happened there? What happened there was man exercised free will. Adam and Eve did what they wanted to do instead of doing what God wanted them to do. In short, God did not get His way on that day. Boy, now, that's kind of hard for me to say. That God didn't get His way. But I am confident in saying God did not want Genesis 3 verse 6 to happen. Because if God got His way, we would still be in the Garden of Paradise. We would be living with Him, walking with Him, talking with Him, doing His will. But by Adam and Eve's choice... Sin and death and all of the consequences that go along with that, they entered into this world. In fact, as you flash forward to the New Testament, look in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, so much of the trouble and the sorrow that we experience in this world can be traced all the way back to those events in Genesis chapter 3. Now that's certainly not to say that we inherit Adam's sin, But it does say that the wheels that were set in motion in Genesis chapter 3, those wheels are still turning even to this day. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says in verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Truth of the matter is, not only did God not get His way in Genesis chapter 3, but God is still not getting His way. Because all of the time, men and women, you and I, we sin. We exercise our free will. We do what we want instead of what God wants. And as a result, there is pain and heartache and trouble of every kind. And God is, God is not responsible for that. Who's responsible for that? Well, a big chunk of the responsibility for that lays at the devil's feet. Satan who puts temptation in our way. In fact, that's that's what started this whole mess in Genesis chapter 3, wasn't it? And then furthermore, not only does Satan bear some responsibility there, but even us, the people who choose to give in to that temptation, when we yield to that temptation, we bear responsibility for the consequences of it. Sin causes much of the suffering that exists in this world. Now, make no mistake here, and I know someone will probably correct me as we're exiting the building today, so I'll just go ahead and put this out there. Yes, it is true. God does directly cause some of the adversity that we face in life. That blind man in John chapter 9, Jesus made it clear that that was God's doing. God did that for a specific purpose and for a specific reason. Isaiah 45 verse 7 is a passage where God just says, I create calamity. God does create and cause certain calamities. He has a reason behind it. He's doing that to build within us some character or to chasten us, to get us to come back to Him. That does happen. And so yes, there's some things that God causes to happen through His power and through His providence. And then there's many more things that the devil causes to happen through sin and through temptation. But I would have you know as well that there's even another explanation for suffering in this world. Would you look in Luke chapter 10? In Luke chapter 10, this is the only place in the New Testament where this particular term is used. 
And it is Jesus who uses this term. In Luke chapter 10, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is talking here about the priest who came upon the man who was lying there dying in the ditch. Notice the phrase that Jesus uses in verse 31. Luke 10 verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Please underscore in your Bible that phrase, by chance. The Bible recognizes that some things happen in this world by chance. And so, for example, here's a child who maybe gets the flu. I read a story yesterday about a child who who got the swine flu. thought we were done with all of that. But here's a child who gets the swine flu. Well, what happened there? Well, so often people that make these big assumptions, they'll say, well, God, you did this to my child. God, you you played some role in that and caused it. You're in control of everything, and this child's now sick because of your your control or your lack thereof. Well, hold on there, friend. How, How do you know that? How do you know that God did that to your child? Perhaps that was just a chance occurrence. Perhaps another child maybe was carrying the H1N1 virus and maybe they accidentally sneezed in your child's direction. And then that bug, that virus invaded your child's body and ended up getting them sick. It was just a chance occurrence. But you know what? Whenever you begin with this assumption that God is responsible for every event that takes place on planet earth, then it's really not long before you decide that God is to blame for every bad thing that happens in life. And of course, whenever you're thinking that way, then it's only natural that next you're going to assume, well, God's in control of everything, and God causes suffering. Well, then that means, secondly, God ought to put an end to all of my suffering. God ought to just fix all of the problems in my life. Can't God find me a job? Can't God heal my sick child? And while He's at it, can't God just go ahead and put an end to all of the temptation that I face each day? I mean, come on. God's certainly more powerful than the devil, isn't He? And God surely can put an end to all this chance stuff. He can just override natural laws, can't He? Why, Why can't God just do that? I mean, if God really loves His children, we talk about the love of God, and we sing about that, and we thank Him for His love, and we praise Him for His love, then it just only makes sense that God would just abolish any and all pain and sorrow for His special people. And the truth of the matter is, God is perfectly capable of abolishing all pain and sorrow. Do you understand that? Look in Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, not only can God do that, but God actually will do that. That's actually part of God's eternal plan. In Revelation 21, as John here speaks of heaven and gives us some glimpses of heaven, the Bible says in Revelation 21 verse 1, Then I saw, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. 
That's a glimpse into heaven. And that's what heaven is going to be all about. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more suffering. Now somebody might read that and they're probably thinking, well, Josh, that doesn't help me very much right now. I don't live in the sweet by and by. I live in the miserable here and now. And so my question is, why doesn't God just eliminate all suffering for His people now? Well, I need to be very, very careful in how I respond to that. Because God doesn't tell us everything about how the universe is run. Which means that we need to be ready in humility to accept the limitations of our human knowledge. You know, the story of Job. We've been reading Job this year. Job begins with much pain and suffering in the first couple of chapters. And at the end of that book, God and Job, they do talk about some stuff, but... God does not explain everything to Job about how the the devil strolled into the throne room and why all these series of bad events happened to him. And so we need to be very careful whenever we're talking about these kinds of things because, because God hasn't told us everything about all of that. But I might make a suggestion or two in that direction that would help us a little bit. Let's just stop and think for a moment about what is God's goal for us? What is God's goal for you and for me? What is God's goal and desire for everybody? Is God's goal for the human race, for us to just live this pleasure-filled existence that is devoid of any kind of hardship or difficulty or adversity whatsoever, is that what God desires for us? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're really not left to wonder about God's goals and God's desires because 1 Timothy 2 tells us, God's goal for you, God's goal for me, God's goal for everybody else who has ever lived on the face of earth is in 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, verse 4. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's goal is for all people to come to a knowledge of the truth so that we might trust Him, and love Him, and obey Him, and serve Him, and ultimately be saved. That is what God wants for all people everywhere. Now the question is, what if God just ended all suffering for Christians? You get baptized, you get saved, you become a child of God, you obey the gospel, God's going to eliminate all suffering for you. Think about how that would change our world. That you become a Christian and and you never get sick. You become a Christian and you never lose your job. You become a Christian and your favorite team never loses. Woohoo! Kentucky Wildcats, we're going to be national champions forever. How great would that be? If the elevators may be running a little slow today at work, hey, no problem. Just go ahead and don't wait in line. Just jump out of the window on the 67th floor and... God's going to catch you on the way down. You don't need to worry about that. You're a Christian. No need to worry about any kind of pain. God's ended it for all of His children. Think about that. If that's really how things work, what do you think would happen? I'll tell you what I think would happen. I think there'd be a lot of people who would become Christians, don't you? I think most churches, we'd have to build not one, but two or three or four baptistries just to accommodate all the people who'd be lined up down the street who want to get in here and be baptized. Somebody gets diagnosed with diabetes. 
And instead of going to the doctor and the doctor writing out a prescription for insulin, the doctor just says, hey, you don't need this insulin. Just go down there to the Lakeside Church of Christ. Tell them you want to be baptized, you want to become a Christian, and that'll take care of your diabetes. That'd be great. There'd be no need for you to ever fasten your seatbelt again. No need to look both ways when you're crossing the street. No need to eat healthy foods like you know, cauliflower, gross. No, none of that anymore. God's got you covered. No pain for Christians. And you think about that. There'd be some pretty crazy and wild things going on, wouldn't there? And most importantly, what would happen is there'd be a bunch of people becoming Christians... Why? Because they love the Lord? Because they have come to a knowledge of the truth? Because they trust God? They want to live for Him? They want to do what's right and they want to be saved? No. No, you'd have a lot of people becoming Christians because they just want to live better in this present world. They would just want to get that fringe benefit of a pain-free life. You know, if being a disciple means that I don't ever have to suffer again, well, well, then I guess I'll be a disciple. You know, I don't really want to, but, you know, it beats having diabetes, I guess. Think about how many phony and fake disciples would be in this world. And that's the kind of thing that you have to take into account whenever you just assume or even expect that God's going to put an end to all suffering for Christians. And while there are certainly occasions... Where God does answer our prayers. We cry out to Him, Lord, I'm experiencing just some real difficulty in my life. Lord, remove this this thorn in the flesh, if you will. And there are occasions where God answers those prayers. And He graciously puts an end to whatever the suffering is that we are enduring. By that very same token, I am sure that all of us have felt, at some point or another, we have felt the agonizing silence of God. Where we prayed and we prayed and we prayed, but God did not answer our prayer in the way that we had hoped He would. And that can be heartbreaking for us. And it is in those heartbreaking moments that many times we are then tempted to make this third and final assumption. And that is we just come to the conclusion that, well, God just doesn't care. God just doesn't care about the pain that I am enduring. God doesn't care about how much I'm hurting. Because if He really did, He would have answered that prayer and He would have removed that thorn in the flesh from my life. God would have came to my rescue, would have helped me like He said that He would, instead of leaving me here all to my lonesome. You know, so often, so often we feel like the psalmists. Would you turn to Psalm 44, please? As we've read this year in the wisdom literature and Psalm, in, throughout the book of Psalms, I hope that you've paid attention and I always have appreciated this about the Psalms. How the psalmists just speak. They just speak what's on their heart. They just say what they're feeling. And sometimes those psalmists are very vocal about their displeasure with God, particularly in times of suffering. Psalm 44 is one example of that. I want you to see that this assumption that God doesn't care about us while we're suffering, that's not a new assumption. In Psalm 44, the psalmist says here, he says to God, Awake! Oh, wake up! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. 
Psalmist says, God, I, I feel like you forgot us here. God, I feel like you're just too busy for us. God, I feel like you're just ignoring all the problems that we are experiencing. God, God, don't you care? You know, here I am. You're all the way up there and I'm all the way down here. And I'm down here and I'm trying to do what's right. I am, I'm trying to follow the Bible. Trying to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Trying to be the kind of person you want me to be. But you know, there's all this turmoil in my life. All these problems circulating around me. And to make matters worse, it seems like you're just absent from the picture. Lord, I prayed. I prayed that my mother would recover from her illness. She didn't. She died. Lord, I prayed that my son would be kept safe when he got deployed to Afghanistan. He's in a wheelchair now. Lord, I prayed earnestly that my husband would find a job so that he could provide for his family. He's still sitting on the unemployment line. God, where are you? Where are you, Lord? You're not here. You're not here when I need you the most. Don't you care about me? And the answer to that question is, yes, He does. Yes, He does. God is there. And God does care. He hurts for us. And He hurts with us. While we're all caught up in ourselves, and we're shaking and pointing the finger at God, and we're indicting Him because it just seems like He let us down during our most difficult moments... God is right there hurting too. Would you like some tangible proof of that? Look in John the 11th chapter. In John chapter 11, we have here the account of the death of Lazarus. And one of the interesting things about this story is that Jesus was told about Lazarus' illness days in advance of his death. In fact, there were messengers that were actually sent to where Jesus was to try and convince Him to come back to the city of Bethany so that He could heal Lazarus. Yet the Bible tells us that Jesus didn't immediately come. Verse 6 of John 11 says that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. Well, hold on. What? Are you serious? Jesus did not immediately drop everything that he was doing and rush over to Bethany to heal his sick friend? What, what, what gives here? Dad, what, what, wasn't Lazarus his friend? Didn't Jesus care about Lazarus? Didn't Jesus care about Lazarus' siblings, Mary and Martha, as they were also suffering through this terrible ordeal? And the answer is, yes he did. Yes, he did care. I know this because of what verse 35 says. Shortest verse in the Bible, a verse we teach to our kids at a very young age. In John 11, verse 35, after coming to Bethany to console his grieving friends, the Bible says very simply, Jesus wept. Can God cry? Can God cry? John 11.35 ought to be the most amazing verse in the Bible. Because not only does it say that God can cry, John 11.35 says that God did cry. God in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, 
shed tears because His people were suffering and He hurt for them. And that is amazing to me, especially when you consider the fact that Jesus knew what He was fixing to do here in just a couple of moments. Jesus knew that He was fixing to call forth and raise Lazarus out of that tomb. Yet I find it interesting that instead of him going over to Mary and Martha and saying, Oh, come on, gals, it's going to be okay. I'm going to raise him from the dead. It's no big deal. No, the Bible says Jesus wept. What a marvelous statement that is. Because that little verse assures to us that when we hurt, God hurts too. You know, we think so often of God, He's just, oh, He's just so distant. We think of God as just being so uninvolved in our lives. We think of us being, God's just so untouched by our pain. But John 11.35 absolutely corrects that mistaken thinking. John 11 shows us that God does care. That He is interested in you, specifically. He is interested in you and your problems. And no matter how small your troubles may be in the eyes of others, to God... They are big problems. God weeps. And when you come to that understanding, boy, that just makes all kinds of passages in the Bible just, just look different. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. I'll give you a couple quick examples. In 1 Peter chapter 5, notice just how many verses in the Bible just start to read a little bit differently. When you know with, with full confidence and assurance that God does care. In 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6, Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. I'll tell you this, I can humble myself. I can worship. I can pray to a God who will weep with me, can't you? One more verse in this connection in John 3. In John 3, in that most famous verse, in verse 16, here's a verse that maybe we take for granted sometimes, but it starts to look entirely different whenever I realize that God's love and care for me, it knows no bounds. In John 3 and in verse 16, the Bible says, For God so loved, He so loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal love. You just think about it now. You were worth a son to God. That is, in my estimation, the ultimate gesture of care and concern for the human race. That's a whole lot more than than shedding a few salty tears for someone in their time of grief. That's a whole lot more than coming up to someone and putting your arm around them and trying to be sympathetic. Those are good. But what God does here is God gets in the game. In fact, God completely changes the game. And that's why I will say to you this morning, without any hesitation at all, that we would be fools to ever turn our back on the one individual who truly knows how deeply we hurt. I realize that sometimes friends and loved ones, they can come to us in our time of pain and they can say, I know how you feel. And maybe they do in some sense know how you feel. But only God truly knows how you feel. And we would be foolish to be angry at Him or to attack Him or to give up our faith in the one person who can genuinely help. 
It is a most foolish assumption to think that God does not care. And while it is true, I may not get immediate relief from all of my suffering. I may not receive instant answers as to why I'm suffering. In fact, I may never know the answer to that in this lifetime. I can still pillow my head and rest peacefully at night in the knowledge and assurance that God cares for me so much that He allowed His Son to come to this world and to bleed and to suffer and to die, to suffer in ways that you and I, we can't even begin to comprehend. And He did all of that because He cares for me. He wanted to offer my eternal salvation. God made possible a way that I could be forgiven. The way for me to be forgiven of my sins and to be saved from the pain of eternal suffering. God has made me one of His children. And the good news of the Gospel is, is that you can be one of His children too. In just a moment then, we're going to be led in a song of invitation. And we're going to invite you to become a New Testament Christian baptized in water for the remission of your sins. That is what God's desire is for everyone. That we would come to that knowledge of the truth. That we would believe it and accept it and then respond to it in faithful obedience that we would be a part of His family. You should know though, and this is an important disclaimer to make to anyone who's sitting on the cusp of thinking about becoming a Christian. You need to know that being a Christian will not banish all pain from your life. Right now. But it will make you suited for the life that is to come. Where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, and no more death. If you're not a Christian, we would love very much to assist you in becoming a Christian this very hour. If you are a Christian, but you have been unfaithful to the Lord, you've not served Him as you ought to, brother or sister, you need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord. If we can pray with you, if we can encourage you to to make that repentance stick, then we stand ready to assist you as well. Let me offer even maybe just one more, a third invitation, if you will, this morning. It may be that as I've talked about suffering this morning, I've maybe struck a nerve because it may be that you're just dealing with something very, very difficult. And it's not a matter of sin. It's just simply a matter of it's just a tough ordeal. You're walking through the fire right now. I need to tell you that we are here to help. The Bible talks about how Christians, we are bearing one another's burdens. But the truth of the matter is, is I can't help you bear your burden if I don't know what that burden is. We'd love to pray with you and wrap our arms around you and reaffirm our love for you this morning and to just let you know that we are here for you if you so have that need. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a wonderful invitation that is. Why don't you accept that invitation? Accept it right now. Make your way down front while we stand and while we sing.